Hello and welcome to the Irish Fire Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Houghton. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and financial independence enthusiast, sharing my financial freedom journey. Stay tuned and welcome aboard. Welcome to a special anniversary edition of the Irish Fire podcast. I have an absolute treat in for you today, and we are celebrating one year of the podcast being launched. The 5th of June 2019 was the very first episode. So look, buckle in. I was extremely fortunate to get Alan on the show. Alan is 41 years of age. He lives in the UK. And a couple of years ago, he became financially independent. And he shares his knowledge of how he did that. And it's an extremely raw and honest interview. A lot of what Alan says resonates closely with my own story in the way that he was self-employed and he was kind of trading time for money, similar to as I am with web development and how he's kind of gone about that and how he was able to build a business system which ultimately led him to become financially independent. Most importantly, Alan touches on an aspect that's close to my heart that he was able to change the world while at the same time produce income from it. And I think that's quite a powerful thing and the way that his mind works in that regard was very, very good. He also touches on some of his influences. He talks about how we should be starting a business and he just gives some great advice. So as always, guys, if you do have feedback on the episode, please send me an email to michael at firepodcast.ie. I would love to hear your feedback on the interview with Alan. And without further ado, let's jump over to the interview. Alan Donegan, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. And thank you so much. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing excellent, thank you. I've been really looking forward to it. Alan, I guess we'll start by getting some of your background. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and sort of how you managed to go from, I guess, starting up to becoming financially independent? Well, that's kind of a long question, isn't it? It's like, where should you start? At birth or beyond? Um, how did I go? We found out about financial independence from a friend who emailed us two blogs, Mr. Money Mustache and The Escape Artist, who's an English one. And we just were like, wow, this makes sense. And financial independence gave us a goal to work towards, which was very clear. We chose the stereotypical 1 million invested, which gives you 40 grand a year passive income on the 4% rule. We worked towards it. We hit it about 18 months ago. And then we've been having a lot of fun. Fantastic. So what I like already, Ellen, and we're going to have to go into this in more detail, is you had an idea of what your number was, which is great, because my number would be around a million euro as well. And I know that from talking to other people in the past that sometimes they don't actually want to reveal their number. And the fact that you have is, is amazing. How did you go about accumulating that wealth? I mean, I guess it's the next question. And I know these are relatively open-ended questions, but um, you know, for, for a lot of us, even myself included, um, you know, getting to 80,000 has been hard enough, let alone trying to go to the next level. Did you find that there was kind of tricks along the way or was it just doing the same thing repeatedly? Or did you find that as you went, things started compounding and you kind of saw opportunities and, and things kind of developed that way? So I think there's several bits there. I'll start with the very first one, which is why I share my number. And I'm quite blasé about talking about money. And it's because I don't like the fact that our culture has a stigma around not talking about money. 
So I feel if I go first and I lead and I'm open, I will promote people to be open as well. So I want to make money an open conversation rather than it being hidden behind closed doors. So that's why I do it. And that's why I think everyone should talk about money openly. It's just an inanimate object. Uh, It's just a thing. But there's a lot of bad emotion around it. So that's why I do it. Main question actually was what happened and how do we accumulate our wealth? I think there's a 10 year period where nothing happens. Like you do all the right things. You save, you keep your expenses down, you keep working on your work, you do what you do, you get better at what you do and nothing happens. And we all know this, but it's the compounding. It's the hockey stick shaped curve that happens later on that changes things. And when that happens to you, it is unbelievable how fast the money builds up. And you're exactly right. The first hundred grand is tough. The first 250, it gets a bit easier. And then when you get to going from 750 to a million, it's like blink of an eye happened within a year. Oops, didn't even think that was coming that quick. And it's because of that compounding. So what I would say to your listeners is you're going to start You're going to work hard and it's going to feel like nothing's happening for 10 years. And then all of a sudden overnight, given a couple of years, you're a millionaire and you won't believe it. But that's kind of how it works. And I think it comes back to this. Most people underestimate what they can achieve in 10 years, but they overestimate what they can achieve in a year. Yeah, I have heard that recently. And Alan, I mean, this is fantastic. And I really do appreciate your honesty on this because it's something that I really do struggle with. And I've been on this journey now two, two and a half years. And, you know, whilst there's some good stuff in there, I also feel I've made a lot of bad investments. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and even though I'm somewhat successful, I don't feel like I'm as far along as I should be. And, you know, I'm constantly dealing with failure and things not working out. I I often say if I try and get something done, I'll, I'll hit nine failures before I get a success. You know, nine no's until I get a yes. I mean, is that something that gets easier as you get more wealthy or is it just is it a mindset approach to kind of dealing with that? And, you know, how have you faced some of those, I guess, failures in the past to kind of get where you are today? Uh, Does it get easier? No, you still have to go through failure. It's exactly the same. It still hurts. It doesn't change. But it's something you just get to deal with. And I think what changes over time is it's the period of time afterwards that it takes you to bounce back. When I was mid-20s and I'd have a failure or something would go wrong, I would go home, curl up into a ball, and it would take me a week, maybe two weeks to bounce back from that. And I'd hide from my friends and I'd hide from the learning and it would take me a long time to bounce back. Now, if something goes wrong, it's like I give myself 15 minutes to feel a little bit upset and then I get over it and move on. And it's the bounce back period shortening as you get on and you go, well, I know I'm going to fail occasionally. And to give you an example of this, Uh, I've been working on a TV show based on Pop-Up Business School. Uh, I flew out to New York to pitch to one of the major networks. Uh, I did the pitch. I thought it went so well. I was buzzing. I flew back home. Uh, And then a week later, I got the call saying we'd been rejected. Now, that stung. I remember exactly where I was. I was outside one of our Westminster events, walking along the canal when I got the phone call. And it hurt. But then you go, well, 
okay, if they've rejected me, it probably wouldn't have been fun working with them anyway, because I gave it my best shot. I was who I am and they rejected us. And that's it. Then I've got to bounce back and move on to the next phase and the next thing. And it's going to hurt all the way through. It's just like, don't let this get to you. It's the amount of time you spend dwelling on it versus getting on with the next opportunity, because there's always another one. To be honest, it's it's refreshing to hear this, Alan, in terms of how you've dealt with that. And, you know, obviously there was a cost and time for you in that case where you've actually flown out, you, 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 you purchased the airline tickets, you've, you've probably stayed at hotels over there. And then to get almost a cold no without even sort of a hint of a, of a you know, maybe next time uh, must have been must have been fairly, fairly yeah, upsetting, I guess, at the time. But, you know, again, as you said, it's, it's about taking the learnings from from those things, isn't it? And, you know, I always say it's not it's not so much a failure as it is getting some feedback and pivoting away from that. And I mean, let's let's talk about some of the things you mentioned in your blog, which which really resonated with me. And you talked about doing the opposite of what everybody else has done. And I've certainly always felt that way. And uh, if anybody knew me from school, I was a little bit of a weirdo at school because I didn't conform to the normality. Is that something that you've kind of dealt with yourself looking back? And, you know, how do you make something that, you know, because when you're younger, doing something that's opposite of everybody else is kind of not cool and not trendy. How do you make that trendy? And, and how do you make that, I guess, something that was an asset to you in the long run? I think... I don't know if I ever have made it trendy. I've just got on with it and don't care what people think anymore. When I was at school, uh, I was the fat kid with glasses that got bullied. And all I wanted was to fit in. That's all I wanted was to be part of the gang. And it's one of the most painful periods of my life, feeling like I don't fit in. And that actually, like, that feeling of not fitting in happened for... A good decade. And I don't know if I even fit in now. And to be honest, I don't care that they can go off and do whatever they want because I'm going to live my life the way I think it should be lived. I'm going to manage my finances. I'm going to look after myself and I don't care. I was in the Times newspaper two weekends ago. There was an article on fire. The article chose a sensationalist headline for my section, which wasn't actually true. And the comments in the newspaper were very negative. But I don't care. I really don't care. I'm 41 years old. I'm financially independent. I get to travel the world, do whatever I want, have fun, write movies, do podcasts, hang out with my wife and have crazy adventures around the world. I don't care what they think. And I think that's the bit, is the switch between having to conform and caring, like, oh, I don't have a house and I'm 41 years old. Well, should I buy a proper house? I don't care. Should I have a nice car? I don't care. I don't have to conform. Should I have a high paying job? Definitely not. Don't ever want one of those again. And I think it's about getting past having to conform, getting past having to do what people say and the societal rules project upon you and deciding what's best for you. And that took a long time to get to that point. I mean, look, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I recently, or in the last 12 months or so, I cut down to part-time work. And I basically, I'm a, by, by trade, I'm a freelance web developer. And I just simply didn't enjoy doing it. And I wanted to give myself that time with the family and time to work on my own you know, businesses and side projects and charity projects as well. And the hardest part wasn't actually going to part-time. It was getting out of my head that I don't have to work nine to five. 
and that that's going to be okay. And, you know, some of the feedback I got from, from friends and stuff was, you know, you're not doing your fair share for society. And it wasn't until I started to see some of the stuff that I was able to do with the free time that I had, which is things like setting up hockey clubs, helping to plant native trees and things like that, that you kind of go back and you go, well, hang on a second, I'm doing way more than I was uh, by, by working less. And so I guess it's kind of getting around that kind of mindset of, right, this is okay. And by the way, when you mentioned the media there, I've been in the paper a couple of times and they're always misquoting me as well. So I know exactly what that's like and it's a horrible thing. Um, and your attitude is spot on, you know, live your life how you want to. And I mean, I guess you've built up your lifestyle in such a way that nobody can really argue, right? Like you've done it in terms of getting there. You know, I mean, I guess I'd love to ask the question, what's it like? You know, what's it like waking up that day and going, you know what? I don't have to do this anymore and I can set my own rules, you know, obviously within reason. Was it a satisfactory feeling or, or yeah, was there a little bit of sadness in it? What, what was it all kind of like in terms of coming to grips with it all? I started my own business about 12, 13 years ago. And one of the very early on realizations when you become self-employed is nothing will happen unless you make it happen. If you go to work and you have a job, you turn up, you do your thing, you go home, you maybe work a bit more in the evenings, maybe you don't, but it happens, like work happens and you just turn up and do it. But when you do your own thing, you have to make it happen. And that's exactly the same thing that happens when you become financially independent is you don't have work to fill your time, but you have to fill it. I think there's been lots of discussion over the bloggers and the different places that people get to financial independence and then they go, what do I do with my life? Well, they've not really thought about it. They've just been trying to get away from a job rather than thinking about positively what they would do. I never had that problem because I have so many things that I want to do that I just don't have time. And I remember it hitting me. We took my mum to Venice for her 70th birthday. And I was on the Grand Canal having a coffee, journaling about what I want to do with my future. And this idea of writing a movie came up again and again and again. So I told my wife, Katie, and she said, well, we've hit our number. Why don't we go and do it? And suddenly you think, well, OK, let's go and do it. So we booked two months off. Uh, we flew to LA. I wrote a movie. I met active directors in the movie industry. We had an incredible time. Then we came back uh, and realised, well, we've been off for two months and we're worth more now than we were when we left, even given the price of breakfast burritos in LA. So why don't we keep doing stuff? And I think then it's just like, well, the world is your oyster. You can do anything. And the only thing that curbs you is your lack of imagination. And I think that's people's biggest problems when they get to FI, is they don't have the imagination to take advantage of the opportunities the world has to offer. Yeah, brilliant, Alan. It's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And I mean, you know, obviously you're a smart guy, you've worked this stuff out. Did you have big influences, mentors along the way that have kind of helped you? books that you've read, for example, to kind of get you in that mindset? Because, I mean, this is, you know, a lot of people talk about this stuff, Al, but nobody is actually, you're actually living it, you're doing it, you're breathing it. It's just fantastic. And, you know, I, I'm so excited to, to almost see what you're going to do next. And, I mean, you must have so many stories as well in that regard. But, I mean, influences, early influences and things like that, were they a big, a big part of this for yourself? Or was it largely a sort of, you worked it out as you went along? No, no, I'm not that smart. I think, First thing is, I think there is a difference between people who talk about it and people who do it. 
and there are not many people in the world who actually just get on and do it. There's a lot of people who talk a good game, but very few people who do. And a friend who is FI as well was saying to me the other day that like you're out there doing it. And that's actually what I'd love to say to any of your listeners is just get on and do it. Your average person never does anything. But going back to your original question of influences, at 21 years old, uh, I was booted out of the family business. My parents were getting divorced. I went to see my girlfriend and said, do you want to go on holiday to Brazil with me? And she told me she didn't love me (laughs) to go on my own, which actually looking back, I'm glad she did. And this friend handed me a book from Tony Robbins called Notes from a Friend. And it was my first ever self-development book. And it blew my mind. Probably as a 40-year-old, you well, I did read it again a couple of years ago, and you go, this sounds basic. But at the time, as a 21-year-old, it blew my mind what Tony had written in that book. And it sent me on a 20-year quest for self-development knowledge. And I read all the books. I go to the courses. I invest in myself massively. Because what I found is the more invested in myself I am, the more I achieve, the more fun I have, the more progress I make. And To very specifically answer your question about financial independence, my mentors, I was very lucky to be able to go on to one of the Chautauqua events and I met Mr. Money Mustache, Pete. I met JL Collins and the mad scientist Brandon and a lot of the other people in the FI world. And JL Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth, if you have not read that and you're trying to achieve financial independence, read that. If you're from Ireland, if you're from the United Kingdom, you do not need to read the American tax chapters, but read the rest. It is excellent. Mr. Money Mustache's blog was very powerful and meeting him was incredibly powerful. Christian Bryce of Millennial Revolution and their book Quit Like a Millionaire. That was the catalyst for us going to become nomadic in January. And they are an incredible inspiration. And I think no person does it on their own. There are such incredible resources for us all to access, like your podcast, Michael, that we just need to use it, listen to it, and then implement it. And I'm not smart enough to have figured this all out on my own. I've had incredible mentors, most of which I've never met, some of which I have, that have helped me along the way. And I'm just, I'm just good at learning and following. Yeah, very good. I've, I've read J.L. Collins's book twice, actually, and uh, I would definitely recommend that as well. Just exactly as you kind of touched on, it's he describes it so easily and simply, and he looks at the long run game as well. You know, he's he's not there for short term wins. He's he's just all about putting that money in the market, leaving it there and let it do its thing and ride it out, as he says. So, yeah, very, very good. And if it's OK, let's chat about um, your own business background for a little bit. I mean, I'm, I've been self-employed myself for my entire career. And I get a lot of questions from listeners who want to go from being employed to being self-employed, but they're probably not always familiar with the trap, which is that being self-employed can result in you working more for less in many cases, especially if you don't actually build a business system. And I suspect that you have managed to build a business system along the way, and that's probably what's helped you to to become financially independent. Is that fair to say? And, And secondly, if that is the case, Yeah, How do you go about doing that and how did you get the mindset to kind of put that together? So one of the things with self-employed, I guess, is the difference. The difference between self-employed and a business is the revolver test. Have you heard of the revolver test, Michael? Yeah, I believe I have, but I'm going to get you to go into more detail for me. 
Well, basically, the revolver test. Let's imagine you had a revolver, you put it to my head, you pulled the trigger, and you killed me dead. Please don't actually do this. I have to be very careful when I'm talking to an American audience. Do not actually shoot anyone. But you pretend it's a thought experiment that you kill the business owner. And the question is, does the business survive? If the business continues without the business owner, it's a business. If it dies with the business owner, it's self-employed. And what self-employed is, it means you have to do the work. And that's basically what I did for the first probably 9, 10, 11 years of uh, building businesses. I ran a training business, so I used to train companies like Microsoft, uh, Allianz Insurance and D.B. Schenker and people like that. I used to train them to present time management presence. But if I didn't turn up and do the workshops, I didn't get paid. And you are swapping your time for money. And that's what I did for the majority of my career is I swapped my time for money and then invested the money. And that investment of the money then brings in a passive return, which then you start to buy back your time. And I don't think like now Pop-Up Business School runs without me. It's out there doing what it does. There's a team of eight people that uh, travel around the world building businesses. We have a franchise in New Zealand run by Tony. Uh, it's in Morocco. It's in France. Now that actually operates as a business. But to start with, Nearly everyone who goes from being employed to self-employed, you will be doing the work and you're going to have to work hard. Sometimes you earn more if you get it right. Sometimes you don't. But you're going to have to work very hard for that money to start with. And it's not always the easiest path, but it can lead to amazing results. Yeah, I, 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 this resonates a lot with what, with what you've just said there, Alan. And, you know, even my own situation as a, as a web developer. It's very much that that scenario where I've basically taken a lot of the money, the excess money, and invested that over time. But sometimes it's frustrating the fact that, you know, I've had all this time doing this 15 odd years, and I haven't been able to develop a business system out of it. I've certainly tried in terms of uh, I've had staff, I've had remote people working for me, but I've, it's always led to a lot of stress and a lot, a lot more pain and a lot, a lot of lost money. And I guess I haven't been able to take that failure and make it a success largely by the sounds of what you've done with pop-up uh, business school so yeah look let's let's talk a little bit about what pop-up business school actually does anyway and you know how how our listeners might be able to take advantage of of the sort of stuff that you guys are teaching pop-up business school i built it because if you ask someone how do you start a business most people say you need a business plan and then you need a loan to get going and that is predicated or based on the belief that it takes money to make money. And I've wanted to smash that belief for so many years because it doesn't take money to make money. You can build a business with no debt. You can build a website for free. You can start selling online without uh, putting your own money in. I've seen people build escape rooms with no debt. It's unbelievable what you can do for free. So I built this thing because I wanted to travel around the world and help people build their own businesses and make their own money doing something they love. And I always wanted every single course we run to be free and open to all. Because going to business school, not only is going to business school not a good way to learn how to start a business, it also costs you a lot of money. 
So what we've done is we've gone out and got sponsorship from councils, from governments, from housing authorities, from corporate sponsors. Uh, we ran a couple events in Dublin, actually, uh, and around there. And we got sponsorship for them and we gave the events away. So last year we ran 52 two-week events around the world. We had over 3,000 people attend our live events and no one paid to come along. And we help people build businesses without debt. Wow. That is one of the most impressive business plans I've I have actually heard, Alan. So a fair play in terms of working that out. And, uh, you know, a lot of the time with, with these educational things, there's, there's usually a, yeah, a, a large chunk of money required. But it sounds like you've actually managed to work that out in terms of in terms of getting the learning across, which is just yeah, fantastic. So please, if you do come back to Dublin once uh, once all this COVID stuff is over, do drop me a line, and I will be more than happy to uh, to promote what you guys are doing, but also be there myself in person because that is that is absolutely fantastic. And look, my own background, I have a business degree. I went to university for three years, and uh, I can honestly say that I probably learnt more running my own business in a month than I than I ever did in three years at university. So it, you you bang on in terms of what your know, business degrees actually teach you, and there's there's nothing really that that beats uh, a real life experience, but also b learning from people that have actually done it. And uh, it sounds like it sounds like you know you've you've done that and been there in terms of uh, in terms of you know working this stuff out. So yeah, fair play. Well, I'd love to know, Michael, from your experience. See, for me, the number one thing about building a business and launching a business is sales. If you don't sell anything, you don't make any money. And actually, if you go to business school, they don't really teach you that much about sales. How important has sales been as you've built your web development business? I'm actually going to talk about a different business because my, my web development business, I, I almost self-sabotage it sometimes because I don't allow it to grow as, as well as it could because I'm, I'm too comfortable. But I recently launched a business called called Forestry Crowd, and the idea was to basically get people on board to buy native forests or establish native forests as a collective, right? So basically, you know, setting up a, a company for each bit of land that's bought and getting people to come on board and, you know, try and help the environment by planting trees, but also there's a return in the government grants that investors would get. And I, I launched the company in, in February, just before the COVID thing unfolded. And to say that it was a flop was was pretty close to, you know, obviously the, the marketing was all wrong. I, I was trying to come across as this is an investment, but hey, you can also help the environment. And I took a lot of learning from it. And um, look, it didn't help with the COVID situation, obviously. And I, I relaunched that business a couple of weeks ago and I rebranded it to lovetrees.ie. And I launched a Facebook page. And this time, instead of going about it from an investment first and helping the environment second, I switched it and went environment first and investment second. And to say that it's become an instant hit is uh, is probably fair. I mean, I had one post last week that had 28,000 views, uh, which was an un unadvertised post. And so it's about changing the dynamic. And so it's one of those things for me that's been eye-opening to see in terms of how such a small change can make such a massive difference. And you know, sales is going to be everything, but but also just branding is, is is massive. And now I'm confident that I can actually make that a success. So, you know, it's I, I guess the question that I would relay back to you on this, Al, is the mindset of going right. Let's keep trying. Let's keep trying. But also facing that rejection, and, and you know, it's horrible when you. See, I spent hours on on that business plan and putting a website together and emailing people out and trying to get people on board 
to only be disappointed time after time. How did I manage to keep going? And, you know, how did you, uh, you know, you, no doubt you've experienced this before as well. How do you drag yourself off the floor and go, look, let's just keep, let's just keep doing this. And, you know, how do you keep selling something that you're not even sure that somebody necessarily wants to buy? The last sentence you said is, how do you keep selling something you're not even sure someone wants to buy? I would never build something until I find someone to buy it. So that's one of the foundational principles of pop-up business school is sell it before you create it. So if I came up with an idea, which let's say, okay, exact example, pop-up business school. I came up with the idea, how much, Michael, of the two-week course do you think I wrote before I went out and sold the first one? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is you'd like to think you, you wrote the first two weeks, but let's say you wrote two days worth. Yeah, I, I wasn't that advanced. I didn't write anything. Um, <laughs> okay, even better. All I had was the idea. And I had this idea and I went to a housing association uh, in Western Supermare. The guy's name was Michael Williams. Uh, I met Michael. We had a chat. I said, here's my idea. I think I can run a course that will help your residents to build businesses and make their own money without debt, which means they're more likely to be able to pay their rent to you because they're earning money. What do you think? He really liked the idea uh, and he said, write me a proposal. And then I actually had to do some work. So I wrote a proposal. I outlined what I thought I would do, uh, sent it to him. He said yes, which I was shocked. This is amazing. I've got a sale. I'm in. Then we booked the dates. We did the finances. And then I had months before the first event to plan it, write it and create it. But if he hadn't said yes... I would not have wasted my time creating it. And I think that's the exact opposite of what most entrepreneurs do. Most entrepreneurs want to have the product or the service or the website perfect before they ever go and sell it. And I think that is a hideous waste of your time because you don't know what the customer wants. So go and sell it, find out what they want in conversation and then give them what they want rather than creating something in isolation that you don't know if anyone will ever buy. Yeah, you could. You've, 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 said, you've said that so well, and uh, I, I have learned that lesson myself. I actually, with the followers that I have on the page, I actually did a small survey um, with them the other day just to ask them that exact question. What do you want? How can we help you I love plant that. trees? And the responses were great, and they were, they were far different than I had anticipated. And I've certainly learned that in terms of taking baby steps. But I like that notion that you said of you know, you're almost trying to delay having to do the work because it is, it's heart-wrenching when you actually go through. And I mean, I'm fortunate myself that I am a web developer. So I could at least, you know, I, I didn't have to pay somebody to do that and lose money on it other than than my time. But, um, you know, it's it's very interesting the way that you did that. And, um, you know, I, I guess it's one of those things where it sounds to me like you're, you're sort of, I'm going to jump into the, into the water and then learn how to swim. And I think as a good entrepreneur, I think that's what you need to do because I often describe myself and I, I, look, I, I like to think I'm an entrepreneur, but sometimes I, I say I'm a bad entrepreneur in the sense that I have a business that is exactly that. It certainly fails the uh, the revolver test. Um, I've started things and I've failed it far more than I have succeeded. I've had a couple of good wins along the way, no doubt. And I, I guess I have made a small difference in society, which is good. But sometimes it's just hard to know where you actually, you know, when you've actually made it and when you haven't. I mean, is this something that you've had to deal with yourself, Ellen, in terms of coming to grips with your own success and kind of, I guess, you know, dealing with that just to, to wake up one day and say, yes, I'm actually, you know, I've made it. I mean, is, is that something that you ever get to or is it just a matter of continually trucking along? 
<laughs> well, I think one of the realizations I've had recently is there is always another level. I don't care how successful you are, what you do, there is always another level if you want to get to it. And that's equally scary and exciting because you can never finish. Like there's no amount of achievement that says I'm done. And actually, I don't think any of your listeners or ourselves should measure ourselves by achievement. We should measure ourselves by am I happy? Am I loving? Am I contributing to the world? Am I having fun? Those are better metrics. The money metric is great. Like, you know, you hit FI based on the 4% rule at X figure. Like, that's a great metric. But what's the point of hitting that figure if you're not happy, if you're not having fun? So I think it's really important that you don't measure yourself by what the world would see as traditional success. And you find your own way to measure yourself that leads to where you want to be. Because if you measure yourself by shiny success and awards, you're leaving your happiness in someone else's hands. So I would uncover your own metrics for success. Is it a case where, I mean, when you look back at what you did, did you chase some money first or did you just chase the fulfillment side and, you know, going after something because you felt like it could be done and the money followed? Is it a case where the money does follow or, or do you need to lead in money first? Well, I think this is a debate, Michael, that's been raging for ages, and I think it's a false one. Why do you have to do one or the other? Like, you don't. You can do both. So I built a business originally sharing tools and ideas in training that changed my life. And I was doing what I felt was right by going out in their world, sharing those ideas and inspiring people. And I sold it to corporates and made money. So I did both. Like, why do you have to do one or the other? And I think there is a false dichotomy that we have all been fed of starving artists. If you want to do art, then you're going to have to not earn any money. If you want to do X and be a good person and go work for a charity and do good, then you're not going to earn money. I've just never found it to be true. I've managed to make money and have fun and do good in the world. I would urge everyone listening, stop getting caught up in that false dichotomy of I can only make money or do good. It's just not true. It's just not true. And at Pop-Up Business School, the more money I've made, the more good we can do. So every time I go and sell a course, we get paid and I help a load of people. It's amazing. So I am inspired to go out there and chase out into the world and sell and grow and deliver because I win, the business wins, the people wins. That's the kind of business you want to build. That's the kind of life you want to build. Don't believe that you can't make money and have fun. Ah, oh, Alan, that is it's so, it's so good. Thank you. Thank you so much because, you know, I, I needed to hear that myself because... It's a strange one, isn't it? You, you, you kind of get roped into it. And I, I've been having conversations with people recently, particularly around the native tree planting. And someone will get on the phone to me and say, well, as long as there's nothing in it for you and you're just doing it for the good of, of growing trees. And I, I kind of can't, can't help but think, well, hang on, you expect me to do all of this work voluntarily. It's, it's madness. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's the same with the FI crew. And I'm sorry, I'm going to have a little go at your audience now. They expect all the blogs, everything to be free. And they're like, why would I buy J.L. Collins's book, The Simple Path to Wealth, when I can just read it for free on his blog? Well, the reason you buy it is this guy spent 30 years figuring this stuff out and distilled incredible information for you down to a simple book. 
Like, reward him for it. And people should reward you for your podcast and what you're doing. You do all this good stuff in the world. And, like, that's the audience's problem. Like, if you want people to do good things in the world, reward them. Brilliant. Thank you, Alan. That, that, that is wonderful. And look, I, I guess in terms of uh, listeners wanting to, to reach out and, and learn more, particularly about um, Pop-Up Business School, but also your own blog, do you want to just give them some details on, on how you can be contacted? If I haven't turned them all off with my rants at the end, hopefully they're still listening. Um, there's kind of three things. One, my own blog, alandonegan.com. Uh, that has articles about financial independence and adventures and helping you get there. Uh, the pop-up business school, which just type in pop-up business school into Google with the only thing that comes up, uh, travels around the world running free courses on how to build businesses. So if you want to have a look at that, feel free. Uh, and then we've just launched a podcast called The Rebel Entrepreneur, which that is designed to spread the message of building businesses without debt further than the courses can. So any of your listeners are welcome to have a look at that as well. Just search Rebel Entrepreneur on iTunes or Spotify and you will find it. Um, so those are the three ways they can get in touch with me. Brilliant, Alan. We will link all of those in the show notes. And I am extremely excited to hear about your podcast because I would love to learn more. It's Look, it's been a, a wonderful 30 odd minutes. Thank you so much for your time. I, I feel like I've really learned a lot. I'm no doubt the listeners have, have as well. So listen, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. And the final thought for your listeners is go out there and do it because no one else is going to do it for you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're a big fan of the show, why not become an Irish Fire podcast member for free? Members receive access to inside information that isn't shared on the podcast, as well as regular updates such as a monthly newsletter. To become a member, visit www.firepodcast.ie.